Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapeutics. I'm really excited today to be joined by Tim Sweeney, the co-founder and CEO of Informatics. We'll be talking a little bit about the domain of critical care, its cost burden on the American health system, as well as some of the unique precision medicines they're trying to bring to market in this space. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. Thanks very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Awesome. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you can give us a quick intro on yourself and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So my background, I did an MD and PhD focused on like mouse models and sepsis. After med school, I went to Stanford for training in general surgery, really enjoyed clinical medicine. And then during my research time, took a side detour into biomedical informatics and machine learning as a postdoc at Stanford. And the idea was it ought to be possible to develop new kinds of diagnostics for acute care indications, in particular infections and sepsis, but also like in response to sort of trauma and other critical illnesses. It ought to be possible to develop new diagnostics based on immune transcriptomic signatures, right? This idea has been around for a long time to use the patient's mRNA response as measured in in white blood cells to better understand their acute immune response. And we spent a couple of years writing that up academically at Stanford uh, with my co-founder, Pervesh Khatri, who's still a professor at Stanford. And then at some point we looked at each other and said, gosh, you know, this work really ought to be a product. Actually, at first, we tried to license it out. No one sort of had the same vision that we had for ourselves. So we decided to do a a startup. We actually met our third co-founder, Jonathan Romanowski, whose background was in commercialization of novel and vitro diagnostics, and founded the company in 2016 off of an SBIR and then an initial investment from Coastal Ventures. And since then, you know, obviously, we've grown quite a bit and I'm excited to be here today to talk about what we're doing in this space now of developing diagnostics and tools for immune subtyping of patients with acute and critical illness. Well, you know, I think in that context, before we sort of get into the meat of the discussion, I'd love to just hear maybe a couple quick words from you on how you've seen like analytics and data science specifically start to evolve in the life sciences space. Sounds like you've been in that domain for quite a while before it was even sexy. So we're kind of curious to see how that's emerged during the time that you've been in the life sciences field. Sure, sure. You know, I'll say first off the bat, obviously, it's a huge field, right? And, and my particular focus has been in more translational work, right? You know, not what can we learn from notes and EHR data, but really what can we learn sort of at a molecular or, or, or protein level. I do think that one of the big changes is that things work. I know that's kind of a funny thing to say, but you know, it seems like 10 years ago when you started, it was just paper after paper of almost statistical kind of mumbo jumbo, right? There was a real famous paper about like any random gene signature can predict outcomes in breast uh, cancer. I don't know if you read that one, but there was a lot of work about, we didn't know how to treat quote unquote big data, especially with small patient numbers. And there was a lot of overfitting and a lot of confusion. And I think we had sort of fallen into the valley of the hype cycle. Microarrays and RNA-seq are going to fix everything. And then sort of they didn't. And it seems like we're on the way out now, where I think there is a lot of clear work that has led to benefit in terms of, yes, the reality is we can use different modalities, different omics modalities. Obviously, we focus on transcriptomics, but the reality is people have been successful across the board to bring new therapies, new devices, new diagnostics to market. And so I think that's probably the biggest change is now sort of a belief that if you do the work correctly, chances are there's the ability to actually derive benefits for patients. Well, you know, I think there's obviously a lot of promise there, and I think it's probably going to be a component of 
unique models, probably for different disease areas or different aspects of treating patients, which should be very interesting for the time to come. So with that, we'd love to hear a little bit about the domain that you play in, in the space of critical care. It's obviously one that there is a measurable amount of need, but not a lot of activity. So we'd love to hear your viewpoint on it and maybe some of the key points of opportunity that exist in that domain. It's funny, I, I was drawn to critical care as a clinical need. Just before we even get into the business model, right? Like I think one of the things that always drew me to working in critical care is that it's one of these domains where people come in really sick from sometimes curable illness. And if we can get them back on their feet and home, they can go on to lead long, healthy, productive lives. And obviously, sometimes that's the case with things like cancer or sort of other end stage diseases. But one of the greatest things about critical care is that real, that success, you know, someone is in a car accident and is on death's door and we can save them. And, you know, that mom of three goes home and ends up living a long, full life. The problem is that as critical care has evolved, our number of treatments have grown and have left us with a lot of people that are now sort of not die immediately, but they're also really, really sick right? There's a lot of supportive therapy. We can support your heart, your kidneys, your lungs, your gut. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do. And yet still there's sort of nothing that we can give, especially in sepsis in patients with overwhelming infections, but really in many cases of multi-organ dysfunction, there's nothing that we can give that can restore homeostasis. There's a theory that a lot of critical illness is due to a dysregulated immune response, right? So What I mean by that is that obviously if you have an infection, you have a pneumonia, you're going to have an immune response to that infection to fight off those bugs. But people who get really sick end up getting really sick because something kicks their immune system into some kind of overdrive and the immune system starts to damage the body itself. We call this a dysregulated host response. That's actually the official definition of sepsis. And yet no one really knows how to define a dysregulated host response, much less treat it. And so an interesting thing, if you look at in particular at sepsis, this subgroup of critical illness, first of all, just for background, sepsis is literally the most expensive diagnosis in all of Medicare, $40 billion attributable directly to sepsis. It precedes almost half of all in-hospital deaths. And those numbers are before severe COVID-19, which arguably is a form of sepsis. So it's a huge problem. And yet in you know 40 years of trying since sepsis has sort of been recognized as a modern phenomenon, there has not been a single successful approval of an immunomodulatory therapy. Sepsis is still treated with antibiotics and supportive care. There was one drug, Zygris, Drochokokin-alpha, that was recombinant activated protein C, and it made it to market and then was withdrawn after it showed harm in a, in a post-market study. So that sort of major success and then failure, I think, definitely caused some caution in the field. But if you look at every other attempt to drug sepsis, it has been unsuccessful. And so critical care and sepsis sort of stand at this really weird place where they're probably underinvested in because of all of the failures, you know, this pretest probability of zero, despite well over a hundred trials. And yet also it's an interesting time where COVID-19 is a form of sepsis. And obviously we have seen this sort of worldwide push to try to get new immunologatory therapies approved in COVID-19. And obviously that effort learned a lot from our prior efforts in sepsis. And certainly our future efforts in sepsis will learn a lot from our efforts in COVID-19. And so, you know, it has changed the space and I think opened the doors for new opportunities. And, you know, when you think about the therapies that exist today, there's one school of thought, which is they're undruggable simply because we just don't know which specific drug to use, right? There's another school of thought, which is we haven't developed the the NCE yet. Where do you sort of land on that spectrum? I think that there's a growing viewpoint among KOLs and sepsis that 
sepsis is not one thing. Just like you wouldn't say today, I have a therapy for cancer, right? You'd, you'd say I have a therapy for triple negative breast cancer. Maybe it's simply true that there's no such thing as a therapy for sepsis because there's no such thing really as, you know, sort of that broad disease, right? It's a huge bucket that encompasses a lot of immune subtypes, a lot of flavors of sepsis. So there's a growing momentum in terms of trying to figure out exactly what subtypes are the ones that will make patients druggable. What is the PR, the HER2 new equivalents in sepsis that will allow us then to sort of identify new therapies, whether it is through totally new therapies and mechanisms of action or sort of the appropriate application of existing medicines into the right subgroups. Makes a lot of sense. As we start to look at different ways in which we can start to pull apart the onion, right, on this problem, I'm sure informatics as technology could be really important here. So we'd love to hear a little bit about the company, how you got it off the ground and some of the types of technologies you're commercializing to help support work in precision medicine. Sure. So I'll say the first product that will come to market is not necessarily a precision medicine product. It's really about the diagnosis of acute infections, prognosis of sepsis. We have this funny cartridge and the cartridge basically allows us to measure 64 mRNAs at once from a patient's blood sample in less than 30 minutes sample to answer. And then once we have those 64 quantitative markers, they represent signaling pathways in white blood cells. We can apply machine learning to produce scores that say things like, well, what's this patient's likelihood of having a bacterial infection, full stop? Or, or what's the patient's likelihood of having a viral infection? Or what's this patient's likelihood of progressing to mortality in 30 days? So that's obviously you know, a clear benefit in like an emergency room or ICU setting where you, where you really need a diagnosis quickly. You know, Does this patient deserve to be on antibiotics? What are the diagnostics they need? Where are they going to the hospital? The precision medicine approach that follows up is what we would call an endotype, a subtyping strategy. And the idea here, we published actually first back in 2018, but we've validated a lot since then, is we can use the same platform, same cartridge, different set of genes, 33 mRNAs that can basically subdivide patients with sepsis into repeatable subgroups. In our case, we think with this initial test, we can show three very clear, distinct subgroups. They have different clinical profiles, different underlying molecular profiles, and we can discern which is which just based on these 33 mRNAs from blood. And actually, an interesting thing is that when we apply that class, we derived it in bacterial sepsis, we apply it in bacterial sepsis and it validates. When we apply it in COVID-19 patients, it also works there. And so it suggests that there might be sort of underlying immune subtypes across different kinds of critical illness. There is sort of a broader hypothesis, which is we think about critical illness in the ICU very syndromically. You know, this patient is here because of a car accident. This patient is here because of sepsis. This patient is here because of pancreatitis or an MI or traumatic brain injury or whatever else, right? But while those are valid, they may be incomplete. And it may be true that actually there's a lot of common mechanisms underneath those pathways. So it might be true that the reason that a lot of this critical illness looks similar is that you get a TNF-alpha overactivation in some subset of car accident victims and some subset of sepsis victims, right? And it's not true across all, but those patients with the same pathway activations might actually be amenable to treatment by the same medicines, even though we would sort of classify them very distinctly under traditional classification schema. So I think that there's a growing maybe push to even think more broadly about how to bring molecular classification into part of the overall taxonomy of critical illness, really to rethink the whole space. 
What role do you think genetics plays in this equation? Do you think folks might be more likely to have one sort of origin, right, of sepsis versus others? Curious what your thoughts are on that. Clearly some. I think, as always, when we look at heritable genetics, there's always this sort of the disappointment that it's only some. The field has looked a lot at heritable genetics in both the risk of bloodstream infections and the risk of death from sepsis, certainly the risk of bad outcomes in COVID-19. And there clearly is a link that in some patients, there are some uh, mutations that can predispose to bad outcomes in critical illness. But, you know, it doesn't explain a lot of the variants that you see in the population as a whole. And so those kinds of genetic tests probably aren't that useful at a population level to determine, you know, do you have a lifetime risk for sepsis? I don't know that the cost benefit would be there, but it does suggest that the host response to a major insult, be it an infection or trauma or anything else, is probably a huge driver of the variability that we see. And so trying to disentangle that and ultimately really trying to figure out, well, what kind of response is this patient experiencing is likely to be a major key in unlocking hopefully a new era of therapies for specific patients, right? And bringing really precision medicine into the ICU. Yeah, that's great. And when you look at the sepsis domain and the number of patients, like what kind of therapeutic impact do you think we could start to see unfold over say, the next handful of years? Sepsis in particular underwent kind of a mini revolution inside the field about 10 or 15 years ago, which was the addition of protocolized care. So sepsis used to have a mortality rate that hovered around 40%. And about 10 or 15 years ago, the field got together and said, look, if we do the same thing to every patient, we're going to fluid resuscitate, we're going to monitor appropriately, we're going to get antibiotics quickly, all these things, the mortality rate dropped to around 20%, and it's been stuck there. And we know how to treat sepsis with the tools that we have, and we know that it's not getting much better. And it's also true that some of this has led actually to maybe an arguable overuse of antibiotics where people kind of get strafed with broad spectrum antibiotics if they show up looking like they might have sepsis. And that has led to its own set of complications and the rise of, of antimicrobial resistance, which is a separate problem. So we can't, you know, you can't just give everyone antibiotics and hope that outcomes improve. There really is a need to say, look, there's this group of patients that despite our best efforts is getting really sick. They stay in the ICU for a long time. They come out really, really debilitated. And so it's not just, we'd like to take that 20%, move it to 10%, right? But it's also, we'd like to get patients out of the ICU faster. We'd like to get them mobilized faster. We'd like to get them back as functional, healthy, productive members of society faster. And all of that is probably linked to how can we more quickly get that immune system back to an adaptive state instead of a maladaptive state. I think the potential for success is sky high. It's just that the bar for success is too. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think from a regulatory standpoint, I'd imagine, as well as a commercial standpoint, I'd imagine the therapeutic side has its own set of challenges right in that space. But given both the financial cost, as well as the fact that at your earlier point, right, it leads to death quite often, perhaps suggests there might be some leeway or flexibility or, or focus, right, on those items. I think that's exactly right. And what I will say is rare is the startup that decides it's just going to tackle sepsis out now, because to be honest, you know, the, the pretest probably stands at zero, but there are a few. And certainly we've talked to many of them. I will say our BD department is open for partnerships on these kinds of subgrouping efforts. We'd love to work with therapeutics companies and try to, to see, you know, can we discern a subgroup that would be particularly responsive to your therapy? 
one of the richest areas of this is folks that start in usually autoimmunity and have something that um, you know is worthwhile in well-known pathways in reducing inflammation. And you know, might we be able to take that and help counter some of the overactive inflammation that we see in sepsis? And that kind of sort of near field repurposing or reuse is probably the most frequent way to take a look at bringing new therapies into the space. Awesome. Before we wrap here, I would love to maybe get some of your thoughts on the state of sort of biotech and diagnostics today, as well as hear a little bit about maybe the approach you've taken to sort of capitalizing and growing informatics. I'm sure there's a lot of budding entrepreneurs who are listening today that might benefit from hearing how you've capitalized and scaled. We've been, I think, pretty successful in, in raising capital, both from the you know venture markets and in terms of non-dilutive uh, support from government agencies. So I think to date, we've raised a little over 150 million in terms of venture funding and about 75 million from the likes of ARDA, DARPA, NIH, folks like that. Reality is both are an important part of our funding journey. I think that as precision medicine, obviously, will get you through the door in a lot of places. People have a thesis that this is going to be a burgeoning field. One of the things that we've always been told as we've brought each successive round to bear is the fact that we have a lot of data to back up our claims tends to be the thing that sets us apart. And so I think we've gotten 70 plus clinical studies of one form or another, either active or enrolling or published. You know, it's not enough to just say, hey, data is going to solve this if we only gather enough. I think that I think people have heard that pitch. And, you know, look, there are some fundraisers that are very, very talented at that sort of like, trust me first, I'll build it later. You know, they say in, in God, we trust all others bring data. And um, so that's the approach that we've taken is just trying to show, hey, these gene signatures really do work. Here's the data that, that they're going to make a big difference. Here's the data that clinicians want to use them. Here's obviously pricing models, et cetera. So we try to form that complete package well in advance of each successive round. Well, you know, maybe before we close, any parting words of wisdom you'd share with uh, folks who are trying to also leave the, maybe the cushy confines of academia and start their own diagnostics or biotech? I think I actually had at one point like an actual gastric ulcer stress-induced from trying to leave behind a career in academic medicine and, and go out on my own. It is a stressful thing to consider. What I tried to remind myself was it's probably going to work out well either way. And I talked to a lot of people about you know career decisions, and I almost always heard from folks to do whatever it was that they had done. You know, you talk to somebody in academic medicine, stay in academic medicine. You talk to someone who left, oh, definitely leave. And I think every now and then you'll get someone who will just sit down and listen and maybe give some advice or, or sort of maybe at least allow you to come to the decision more fully. I am very, very happy with the decision I made, not because I don't think I would have been happy as a trauma surgeon. I think it would have been very rewarding, but the path to building informatics has been one of the most challenging and rewarding thing I've ever done. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Awesome. Wonderful. We'd love to thank you for joining us today on the podcast and sharing a little bit about both your story and your view on critical care and, and informatics. Would certainly love to have you on again soon as you know your thesis plays out and the company continues to grow. And again, for your listeners, if you do have a program that sounds like it might be amenable to uh, repurposing in, in critical care, info at inflammatics.com. We'd love to hear from you. And, and thanks again for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.